when Kerry determined he was going to go to India, he was told by the mission sending agency that when God was pleased to convert the heathen, he would do it without William Carey's help. And William Carey went anyway. And he wrote in his journal, and he said, I left England. My hope of India's conversion was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God, and His word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all, persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on the sure word would rise above all obstacles and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. And... Of course, you know about India being it was unreached then it's unreached now. But I, I took that, I wrote it down and carrying it and and in making it a statement of my own. My hope of Gaiman's conversion is very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. And though the nominalism of Gaiman were a thousand times stronger than it is. Were the apathy of Gaiman a thousand times worse than it is? Though I were deserted by all, persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the sure word, would rise above all obstacles and overcome every trial. For God's cause, the salvation of Gaiman will triumph. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, worthy of our trust. We have you. Your word is true. Father, your word has never gone anywhere where there were not obstacles. The hearts have always been hard. And so we facing a unique challenge for our time, but not a unique challenge for the gospel, not a unique challenge for your word. Father, enlarge our hope in you. Enlarge our view of you. As we look at the book, prophet Isaiah, let this renew our hope. Let this enlarge our idea of who you are and what you're like. And let it fill us with hope, the salvation of souls in Guyman, Oklahoma, through the, the proclamation of your gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a year or so ago, I read an article by a guy named about a guy named Jordan Peterson. Now I know almost nothing about Jordan Peterson other than I've seen others reference him on social media. But what caught my attention was the the title of the article, Living Like You Believe in God. Now the guy who wrote the article is an elder at a church in England. And in the article he gives a quote from Peterson about whether he believes in God or not. Listen to a part of what this fellow Jordan Peterson says. Let's say you say you believe in God. That's hypothetically pretty impressive. It's like you believe that there's a divine power that oversees everything, that is fundamentally ethical, that's watching everything you do. So what effect does that have on your behavior if you believe it? Are you sacrificing everything? To this transcendent, transcendent entity that you proclaim belief in? 
Have you cleansed yourself of all your sin? If you believed in God actually, like seriously, you'd be a good person right now. Because, well, for obvious reasons. If that hasn't happened in some sort of miraculous sense, so that you're the best person you could possibly imagine being on an ongoing basis, and then terrified of deviating from that path in a serious manner, then I don't see why you have the right to say you believe in God. That's a powerful statement. And while he obviously does not understand some of the finer points of grace and the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, the the gist of his statement about what it means to believe in God is, is exactly right. If we say we believe in God, the God of the Bible, the God who speaks worlds into existence, who sends His Son to die on the cross for our sins, raises Him on the third day and forgives us through sheer grace and no merit of our own, if we believe in a God like that, then this belief should have a profound impact on our lives, on all of our lives. This belief in God should shape our our values. And it should make our values different than the values of a lost and an unbelieving world around us. This belief should shape our priorities. And what we prioritize in our life should be fundamentally different than what an unbelieving world around us prioritizes. Attitudes. Those who believe in a suffering Savior who died for their sins ought to have a different attitude than those who believe you've got to stand up for yourself and get your own. Our actions. Those who believe in a God who sent His Son and a Son who served men, even those who rejected Him, ought to act differently than the unbelieving world around them. Reactions. Those who believe in a Savior who was mocked and beaten and spit upon and did not even so much as respond or revile in return, ought to react to stressors and people differently than the unbelieving world around us. Morality. If we believe in a God who is holy, 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 and a Savior who died for sin, that should have a fundamental impact on our personal morality, which should be different than the unbelieving world around us. Time management, how we use our time, our financial stewardship, what we do with our money, our relationships, the kind we have with other people, our treatment of others. If we serve a God who cares for the widows and the orphans, And He sent His Son who cared for the lepers and the outcast. Surely we ought to treat people differently than an unbelieving world treats people. And our use of spiritual gifts. If this God we believe in has sent His Spirit to live within us and that Spirit has gifted us to serve our God, surely what we do with those gifts ought to be different than the way an unbelieving people live. There's really no aspect of life which should not be affected by our belief in the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is incredibly great and incredibly awesome. Now, if you're out on a windy 
cool Wednesday night, you probably already know the God of the Bible is great and awesome. However, we can always use reminder about such powerful truths. We're going to spend the next several months, and I don't know how long, in studying the revelations God gave to the prophet Isaiah. Through Isaiah, God reveals much about himself, about humanity, about Jesus, and about how we ought to respond to such revelations and a God such as ours. Tonight, what we're going to do is a a sort of a survey of what we can expect to see as we study the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. What can we expect to learn about God and humanity and Jesus and how should we respond? So what does God reveal about himself through the prophet Isaiah? Well, when I went through making a list, my list was far too long to cover in one lesson on all of the things we're going to look at. So in some of these things, we're just going to throw them up there, mention them, and then we'll move on. Others we will look at in depth. So quickly, God is exalted. He is high above all. He is greater than all. God is omniscient. He declares the end from the beginning. God is omnipotent. He can do anything he wants to do and no one can oppose him. God Created us individually. God is holy. God is. God alone is God. Missed it. God alone is God. That's going to be a key point. There's only one God. It's Yahweh. It's not any other. God is our creator. And then God is holy. So if we're going to take God seriously. Then we we must view God as exalted. Omniscient. Omnipotent. God alone, our creator and holy. And then two that we'll look at in depth. God is incomparably worthy. A lot of passages throughout the throughout the, the prophet Isaiah's writings will reveal this, but this is probably the greatest. Behold, all the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust. On the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, we've all probably heard the the phrase, it's just a drop in the bucket. Well, this is where it comes from, this passage. The phrase is used to describe something small and insignificant. If you lower a 50 gallon bucket into a, a well and you pull it out filled with water and one drop spills out, well, you don't get really stressed because a drop is insignificant in comparison to the bucket of water you just pulled out. In the same way, all the nations of the earth, if you took them, And you took them in all of their glory and all of their height and all of their best. And you compared them to God. They would be every bit as insignificant as one small drop of water falling out of a large bucket. God illustrates this further by saying that all of the nations in their glory are like a speck of dust on the scales. Right. So if you go to the market, you go to Walmart and you go to pick up your apples and put them on there to weigh them. 
do you, before you do so, do you get your wet nap out and, and wipe the scale down to make sure there's not even a speck of dust on there? Probably not. Because we know a speck of dust is insignificant in comparison. It's not going to, to matter really at all. In a similar way, when you have God on this side and all of the nations in all of their glory on this side, they are like a speck of dust on scales in comparison to God. The best sacrifices of the nations are not enough for God. They're not adequate for God. Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its animals for a burnt offering. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the the cedars of Lebanon were considered like the best trees of the land. Anytime a king wanted to build something fine, he wanted the cedars of Lebanon. And what this pictures is that if you were to cut down the entire forest of Lebanon and build a, a, an altar to burn to God, that those burnings, those trees, that entire forest would not be enough. And if you took all of the animals in that forest, when you cut down all of those trees, they still would not be enough. God is worthy of even more than that. Nothing on earth could be given to God to adequately demonstrate His greatness. And the nations of the world are meaningless before God. The idea here, they are regarded by Him as less than nothing. They're nothing before Him regarded as less than nothing and meaningless. It's, again, relative importance. In comparison to God, all of the nations of the earth are nothing. Less than nothing. They are meaningless. Great and powerful nations have come and gone. And if God tarries, the great and powerful nations of our time will come and go. But God will remain. If we are to take God seriously, we must view God as being incomparably worthy. And then the last one on this, God calls us to himself. Isaiah 55, you there. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? Your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. There are some key elements to see in this passage. First, notice those who are thirsty are invited, and those who have nothing are invited to come to God. Those who are thirsty come to Him for water. Those who have nothing come to buy what is good, the the wine, the milk, the, the best there is. Second, notice there is a, a right and a wrong place to look for what we need. Right? The, the question is asked, why do you spend your money on that which does not satisfy? Why do you spend your wages for things that don't really help you? Why do you give your life and search for things in wrong places that don't do anything for you? In comparison, come to God. And when you come to God, get what it is your soul truly needs. And I think we're supposed to also see a contrast between what the world, which is the other, and what God offers But it's not just a contrast in what's offered. It's a contrast in the results of taking what's offered. 
when we take what the world gives, we're still thirsty. When we take what the world gives, we're still hungry. When we take what the world gives, we never really have enough to satisfy us. We always need and we long for more. When we take what the world gives, it doesn't give us the strength we think it ought to give us. When we take what the world gives, it does not satisfy us. Our souls are always left famishing. However, when we take what God offers, we find what is good. We find an abundance. We find a living water that those who take will never thirst again. We find the bread of life which satisfies us finally and fully. And we find far more than enough. We find an abundance for our souls in the Lord God. And if we're to take God seriously, we must view him as calling us to our to himself and and offering us what's better. I think that's the key. The world is calling to us and offering something. And God is calling to us and offering something. To take God seriously is to say God is calling to us. But it is also to say what God is offering is better than what the world is. So there was much more could be said that time won't allow. You just have to come back and see what else God reveals about himself through Isaiah. Then we go to humanity. What does God reveal about humanity through the prophet Isaiah? We were created for God's glory. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. We are called by the name of God, we are created by God, and we are created for the glory of God. You and I and all humanity were created to be a living advertisement for how good and how great God is. We see this idea in the New Testament as well when Paul says God saved us for the praise of the glory of His grace. All of our life is meant to bring glory to God. And again, to go back to what I mentioned in the introduction, our value system ought to glorify God. Our daily priorities ought to glorify God. Our daily attitudes ought to glorify God. The actions we take on a moment by moment basis ought to glorify God. The way we react to stressors and people ought to glorify God. Our morality ought to glorify God. The way we use our time ought to glorify God. The way we manage our money ought to glorify God. Our relationships and how we treat people in those relationships ought to glorify God. The way we treat the outcast and the different and the other ought to glorify God. The way we give ourselves to use our spiritual gifts ought to glorify God. All of life. Down to eating and drinking, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, are to be done for the glory and honor and praise of God. And so if we are to take God seriously, then we must view ourselves as being created by God to live for the glory of God. But also humans have gone astray. We have all gone astray. All of us like sheep 
have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Despite being created for the glory of God, we have gone astray. We're likely familiar with the New Testament idea of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We've all known what God said thou shalt do. And we've all said, no, I shall not. We've all known God said thou shalt not do something. And we've all said, oh, yes, yes, I shall. Then at other times we've all tried to live up to God's glory, to do what God would have us do. And yet we fell short of doing God's will. And if we're going to take God seriously, then we must view ourselves as having gone astray. And having gone astray means we have no righteousness on our own. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf and our wrongdoing like the wind take us away. The result of having gone astray is we're devoid of any innate righteousness. And we are like filthy rags. We are so devoid of innate righteousness that our our righteousness, our, our good deeds are like filthy rags. Now, to me, that's a key point to understand. God doesn't tell us here that our bad deeds are like filthy rags. It's not what he says. Our righteous deeds. Because we have gone astray, our very best actions apart from Jesus are filthy garments. That is the best we can possibly do. And if we are going to take God seriously, then we must view ourselves as having no righteousness on our own. And since we have gone astray and we have no righteousness of our own, we need God to cleanse us. And Isaiah said, woe to me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and with it he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and atonement is made for your sins. Isaiah, having seen the holiness of God, the greatness of God, recognizes the depths of his own depravity. He recognizes he's gone astray and he has no righteousness of his own. And what that leaves him is, is ruined, undone. Waiting to be destroyed by this righteous and holy God in a righteous judgment. And then in an act of pure mercy, God sends an angel to grab a burning coal, touch his lips and atone for his sins. God did not leave Isaiah in that place of having gone astray, having no righteousness, justly condemned. God made a way, God made an atonement for Isaiah so that he could be righteous and he could be pure in the sight of God. God provided a cleansing. But it's important to notice it's something God did. Isaiah did not turn over a new leaf. Isaiah did not go back and say, I'll go back, God, and I'll stop being a man of unclean lips and I'll talk right and walk right. It was God who did it. It wasn't Isaiah. This is what it means by we need God to cleanse us. The need 
isn't for any human anywhere to turn over a new leaf and be a better person or to be more moral or even to be more religious. The need is for God to do what only God can do and only God can cleanse us. And if we're going to take God seriously, then we must view ourselves as needing God to cleanse us. And again, much more could be said and will be said in the coming weeks, but you'll just have to come back and see. So what does Isaiah, what does God reveal about Jesus to the prophet Isaiah? Quite a bit, considering this is an Old Testament book. In fact, Isaiah reveals more about Jesus than any other Old Testament prophet. Now, again, I'm going to throw out quite a few things, some that are familiar, and then we'll look at one in particular. Isaiah tells us Jesus would be born of a virgin. Isaiah tells us Jesus would be God with us. Isaiah tells us Jesus would build an everlasting kingdom. Jesus would have the fullness of the Spirit. Jesus would minister in the power of the Spirit. Jesus would establish justice on the earth. And Jesus would be the suffering servant sacrificed for sins. I want us to look at that one. So turn to Isaiah 52, verse 13, page 559 if you have a pew Bible. Now we're familiar probably with the idea of Jesus dying on the cross and the familiarity of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is both good and bad. It's good to know what Jesus has done for us, but it can be bad if we let ourselves become so familiar with what Jesus has done that we lose or we forget the personal nature of what happened on the cross. What happened to Jesus was done for me and it was Done for you. Now the point of what Isaiah is going to, what God is going to reveal to Isaiah here was really driven home to me several years ago on a good, on during the Holy Week. I was sitting home on a Sunday afternoon trying to decide a passage I was going to meditate on throughout Holy Week. And the Holy Spirit brought this particular passage to my mind and I thought what better passage to have in my mind to meditate on during Holy Week than the prophecy of Jesus, the suffering servant sacrificed for sin. So let's read the whole thing. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of any man, and his form beyond the sons of mankind. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouth on account of him. For what they had not seen, what they had not been told, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain, familiar with sickness, and like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was for our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we, we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment of our well-being was laid upon him and by his wounds we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the wrongdoing of my people, to whom the blow was due. And his grave was assigned with wicked men, and with the rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper at his hand. As a result, the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many. He will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great and he will divide the plunder with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was counted with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore our sin or the sin of many and interceded for wrongdoers. Now, Sunday night, as I was reading through that, preparing for Holy Week, the Holy Spirit, as I read it, kept just saying, for you, for you, for you. And that so affected me that I went through my Bible and in every Bible I've had since that day. And I've put myself in the story. I've said, for me, I've put myself in here to be sure when I read this, I would always know what Jesus did. He did for me. So I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read it with my annotations to it. You read it with yours. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled by you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of a man for me. And his form beyond the sons of mankind for me. He will sprinkle many nations. King will shut their mouth on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. If they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure. And he was despised and abandoned by me, a man of great pain, familiar with sickness and like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised by me and I had no regard for him. However, it was for my sicknesses that he himself bore and my pains that he carried Yet I assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. He was pierced for my offenses. He was crushed for my wrongdoings. The punishment of my well for my well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, I am healed. Like a sheep, I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. But the Lord has caused my wrongdoing to fall upon him. He was oppressed and afflicted for me. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shearer. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for me. For my wrongdoing was who the blow was due. And his grave was assigned with the wicked men. Yet he was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him for me, causing him grief for me. He renders himself as my guilt offering. 
He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul for me, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify me. For he will bear my wrongdoing. Therefore, I will allot with him a portion with the great. And he will divide the plunder with the strong because he poured out his life unto death for me. He was counted as with the wrongdoers for me. He bore my sin and interceded for my wrongdoings. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to be the suffering servant who sacrificed for our sins. And so if we're going to take God seriously, then we must view Jesus as the one who was born of a virgin, who would be God with us, who would build an everlasting kingdom, would have the fullness of the Spirit, would minister in the power of the Spirit, would establish justice on the earth, and would be the suffering servant sacrificed for our sins. More about Jesus will be told as we go along. So the question now, how should we respond to these revelations? How should we respond to who God is, who we are, and who Jesus is? Well, all throughout the book, Isaiah, God gives him revelations about how humanity ought to respond to the revelation of God himself. So there's a bunch I'll look at really quickly and then one overarching one and we'll close. We ought to repent. Repent of our sins. We ought to go to God for cleansing because he invites us to come to him and be cleansed. We ought to hear and answer God's call for mission. We ought to live courageously because the floods and the fires will not overtake us. We ought to pray relentlessly until God makes Gaiman, in our case, a praise for his glory on the earth. And all of these and all of the other ways that Bible will, God, Isaiah will tell us to respond can be summed up with this very one right here. Take God and his word seriously. For my hand has made all these things. So all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But I will look to this one. The one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. This is the one overarching response to everything we will see as we study the prophet Isaiah. Everything God has revealed about himself, about us, about Jesus, should lead to this one response. This is a picture of someone who takes God seriously. And it's a picture of someone who takes God seriously and it's seen because they take God's word seriously. And really seriously isn't a strong enough word. Because it's someone who takes God and his word so seriously that when their life is out of whack and out of sync with God's word, they tremble at that. And so the question, do we tremble at God's word? How do we respond when we look at what God's word says about who God is, about who we are? About who Jesus is. About how we ought to respond. And we see we're not right. Do we, do we tremble? Do we rationalize? Do we minimize? 
Do we justify? Do we tremble? Because we're out of sync with God and His Word. The reality is we do not take God seriously if we do not take His Word seriously. Now we may want to push back against that. But we do call this the Word of God. It's not just a snazzy saying. That is literally what this book is. It is breathed out by God for us. So what does God think? It's in here. How does God feel? It's in here. What does God say about how we ought to live and act and believe and and do? It's in here. And so when we minimize this, we minimize God. When we ignore this, we ignore God. When we take this lightly, we take God lightly. To take God seriously, we must take His Word seriously. And if we take His Word seriously, it makes sense we would tremble when we see we're out of sync with what God has said about anything in life at all. So if we're going to take God seriously, we must respond by repenting of our sin every time we sin. We must respond by going to God for cleansing, for only God can cleanse us. We must respond by hearing and answering God's call to mission, for He's still crying out, Who will go for me? We must respond by living courageously, because He is still the King over kings, the Lord over lords, and we are still in His hand. We must respond by praying relentlessly, for only God can make any town in the world something of His praise for His glory on the earth. And we respond by taking God's Word seriously. Taking God seriously. Let's pray. Father, we love You tonight. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Help us tonight to evaluate ourselves in light of just what we've seen. This was just such a brief, not even, can't even call it an overview of all the goodness we're going to look at in the study of the prophet Isaiah. But Lord, the great need in all of it is for us to To have our view of you elevated. That you would be big in our minds. And you would be big in our hearts. Not just in words, but in deeds. That every aspect of our life would show we take you seriously. There would be no aspect of our lives, Father, that would not... Reflect, we are trying to bring you glory in all we do. And every time, every time we read your word, every time we hear your word, every time somebody teaches your word and and we realize we're out of sync with you. Oh, God, make us a people who tremble at your word. Cause us, Father, to be passionate for your word, passionate for your glory, passionate To demonstrate to the world around us, our God is great. Our God is awesome. And our God is incomparably worthy. 
We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.